Good morning, everyone. It's my joy to worship with you this morning. It was a wonderful worship set. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, all of you. Um, Yeah, it's just something special, not just about singing truth, but singing it together. Um, So thank you, all of you, for being here, joining us in worship together. And it's my joy now to open God's Word for you. Now, we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, one of the four books in the New Testament that give an account of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And I need to tell you ahead of time, this is probably going to work out as a longer sermon and definitely a little bit of a more technical sermon than than we typically typically have here. Um, But that's just because that's some of, the, some of what uh, is in the passage and what needs to be explained. So I'm going to ask you, please, hang in there with me. Try and pay close attention all the way through. Um, and a uh, bit of a, as I say, a little bit of a longer road, perhaps a mo- little bit more technical sermon, but I trust uh, that it will be well worth it. Uh, God will use it and, and help you through it if you hang in there with me. Okay, now, in the last few passages we've looked at, we've seen growing opposition against Jesus from the Pharisees and other religious Jews. First, all the way back at the beginning of chapter 2, we saw the Pharisees getting very upset with Jesus because he told someone that his sins were forgiven. Something the Pharisees rightly recognized Only God had the authority to do. Then we saw them upset with Jesus and his disciples for eating with tax collectors and sinners. This, they were adamant, is not something that religious, holy people should be doing, spending time with people like that. Then they took issue with the fact that Jesus' disciples were not fasting like they fast. They fast twice a week, every week. They expected Jesus and his disciples to do the same, even though Scripture does not require that. And then last week, we saw them upset at Jesus because he didn't submit himself or his disciples to their extra rules and regulations regarding the Sabbath. And then, ultimately, we saw that when Jesus claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath, to be the authority over the Sabbath, essentially a claim to be equal with God. They resolved to destroy him, the text says. To destroy him. So, there's been growing opposition against Jesus. There also, however, has been growing popularity. We've also seen uh, Jesus' popularity exploding, honestly. It's, it's, it's actually hard to wrap our minds just fully around just how popular Jesus was becoming. Some people are believing his teaching and coming to learn from him, no doubt. And then there's many people coming to him for healing or for deliverance from demons. And then surely also many people who just want to observe the spectacle, want to come, even if they have no need of a miracle themselves, are coming to see these miracles. And the popularity was so intense that the crowds would gather around him like the worst 
paparazzi-type situations uh, celebrities today might have to endure. Pushing and shoving and cramming in close, making it difficult for Jesus to even walk freely um, or to teach, as we know his priority was. All the way back in Mark 1.45 already, we saw this. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. He couldn't even walk freely through a town. There were just too many people, too much attention, too little space to move, people cramming, crowding around him. He had to stay out in remote areas where there was more open space, where people also had to then go out of their way in order to get to him. That was the only way he could have any chance of being able to actually teach and not getting swamped and mobbed by people. Then, in the beginning of chapter 2, we saw with the healing of the paralytic, right? Jesus is in a house teaching, and the house is packed. And the crowds are so dense that people couldn't even get near the, uh, people coming from outside couldn't even get near the door of the house. So the only way that these people could get their friend to Jesus to be healed is to climb up on the roof, find a way to open the roof, and lower their friend down to Jesus from above. Because there was no getting to him from the sides, right? Too many people. Crowds packed too densely. And we see the same here in this chapter. Look uh, at Mark 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. This crowd was coming from far and wide, from Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. Idumea was about 120 miles south. I should have converted that into kilometers. Sorry. It's a long way. 120 miles south. And people were coming from beyond the Jordan. That's out to the east. And people were coming from the area around Tyre and Sidon, which is about 50 miles north. Because this is in a time without cars, without trains. If these people are coming to him, they're either walking or coming by donkey. They're making a big effort to come and see Jesus. And this crowd was diverse. They were from, uh, from the regions listed here. We know that this crowd definitely included people both from cities and from more rural areas. 
It included both Jewish people and non-Jewish people. The crowd was, was so big and so intense in the eagerness to get to him too that he had to stand in a boat. Okay, think about this. What basically Jesus did is he said, okay, I need to get in that boat and then you need to push that boat out a little bit so that the only way people could come and, and crowd around me is they'd have to swim to me. Okay? So the boat's just far out enough that the people would have, to, would have to wade through the water or swim to get to him, but just close enough that he can still preach and teach from there. Imagine that being necessary, that the crowds are not just that big and that passionate, but there's just this, this desperation, even as we'll see here in a little bit, to get close to Jesus, to touch him. It's nice to be famous, for sure. I'm sure. Well, I don't know. I'm sure it is, though. Uh, to have your moment in the spotlight. But I think we often miss in these passages that this is actually very difficult. <laughs> There's a big difference between people noticing you and treating you special because you're some sort of a celebrity and this type of attention where people never leave you alone, and they're always trying to get something from you, where they're willing to, to fight each other to get near you. That can get old very quickly. It can be draining, exhausting. And you see definitely Jesus' great compassion here, right? Because, as we said, a lot of these people are not actually driven or motivated by his teaching. They don't necessarily recognize him as Messiah. They don't necessarily care why he's able to do miracles. They just want the miracles. Many of them, as I said a moment ago, desperate. Medical care was not what it is now, back in those days. So there's many things that would be very treatable today that people would have felt no options for back in those days. Jesus was their only hope. And though healing is not the focus of Jesus' ministry, as we've said, he heals them anyway. He heals them whether they have any true interest in him or not, out of compassion. We should note Jesus' compassion here, and we should be encouraged by it, because this is our God. He sees what we're going through, and he cares. And we should be exhorted by his example of compassion to be people who show compassion ourselves. Oh, we definitely here also see again Jesus' great power. Obviously, all these miracles show us yet again that Jesus has incredible supernatural power, healing person after person, and surely a wide variety of different diseases. Remember, people are coming from far and wide, and there's so many of them. And we see... Again and again, the demons recognizing this is the Son of God. This is the King. This is God Himself. 
And in fear and submission, they submit to him. In addition to the power and authority his miracles put on display, though, remember that these miracles also declare who Jesus is in another way. See, Jesus doesn't just do any impressive display of supernatural power. We don't see him changing color, like purple one moment and then pink the next moment, and then, ah, now he's shiny gold. We don't see Jesus turning himself into this huge, big giant and taking big steps. We don't see Jesus uh, picking up a donkey and throwing it in the sky and balancing it on his pinky finger. He could do those things if he wanted to. Of course he could. But he doesn't do things like that. No. Jesus didn't do anything that was just impressive for the sake of being impressive. These miracles are about more than displaying his power. These miracles show us also that Jesus has the ability to reverse the fall, to reverse the curse, to truly conquer sin in every way. These miracles show us they're a foretaste of the type of kingdom Jesus is going to be king over. Remember, we've said Jesus is the king. And the kingdom has arrived because the king is here. And yet, the kingdom is already here, but not yet fully here. A time is still coming, right? When Jesus returns, when there'll be no sin, no sickness, no sadness, when all the effects of sin will be reversed, when everything will be as it should be. And Jesus is giving a foretaste of that in these miracles. Demons, no, you don't rule here. I rule here. Get lost. No, no more sin. I mean, sorry, no more sickness. No more diseases. No more disabilities. That day's coming, my friends. And Jesus is announcing it through his miracles. He's giving a picture of it. A foretaste of it. Jesus also, what we see in this text too, is that Jesus has a purpose and a plan. Jesus has a purpose and a plan. Look back with me at Mark 1.38 for a moment. This was back when Jesus' popularity first began to take off. Everybody was looking for him, and his disciples wanted to go back, wanted him to go back to the crowds and ride the wave of popularity. Jesus, everyone is looking for you. And what does Jesus respond then? And he said to them, Let's go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Okay? All right, sure, popularity's picking up here. Everyone's excited about me here. Everyone wants me to stay. It's time to move on. I've already preached here. Let me go preach in other towns also. 
That's my priority. Announcing that the Messiah is here, the Savior has come, the King has come. Getting the word out. Jesus' priority is preaching, and in order to spread that word far and wide, he needs to keep moving from place to place. Spread the message as far as possible. So a couple questions then. Why do we see, I know we've already touched on this in a previous sermon, but it's been a while. Why do we see Jesus giving commands for people to keep silent about the miracles he's done or about who he is? See, in this passage, he tells the demons not to, to, to be declaring who he is. He tells them to be silent. And previously we saw him ask people he'd healed not to share it. And why, why at this stage, why do we see Jesus appoint the apostles? Uh, that's the, the next section we're going to look at here. Why do we see Jesus appoint the apostles now? Well, think about this with me, right? For people to believe, they need to hear the message. They need to hear the message. That requires preaching and traveling around, as we've said. And it's true, what's happening more and more is that people are coming to Jesus from further and further afield. That is happening. But of course, there's much more people where those people are coming from. And beyond that, for Jesus to reach with the message of the gospel as well. And we've seen Jesus doing miracles out of compassion. And we've said that he's doing miracles also, and primarily so I'd even say, to authenticate his message. But the more Jesus does these miracles, the more his popularity escalates. And the more his popularity grows, the more he teaches, and the more his teaching and actions disagree and confront the Pharisees, the more eager they become to kill him. So Jesus has this balance to try and keep. He needs to preach. He needs to preach far and wide. He needs to keep doing miracles that, again, are a foretaste of what's to come in his kingdom that declare that in, a, in, a, in, in, in a one sense the, the kingdom is already here even because the king is here. These miracles that help prove that he really is God because of this great supernatural power, so on and so forth. He needs to keep doing these things. And yet the more he does them, the more opposition he gets. And as we've already said, right? Already now, things have gotten to the point that the Pharisees want to kill him. They want to silence him. They've decided this must stop. But Jesus still has a lot more people to tell. He can't die yet. He can't go to the cross yet. He's not running from the cross, by the way. We'll see very, very clearly later in Mark Jesus' intentionality to go to the cross. Nothing's going to stop him going to the cross. He tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, when Peter tries to talk him out of going to the cross. There's no, there's no fear of going to the cross. No reluctance to die to save us. But it's just not time yet. 
needs to preach more. He needs the message to spread more. So he needs to reduce the spread of his fame when it's not connected to his message of repentance from sin and faith in the gospel. Right? So he doesn't want necessarily word to just spread simply about his ability to heal. <coughs> he doesn't want necessarily word to spread just simply about the miracles he can do. What he wants is for people to hear his message and then for him to back up that message with miracles. That's one big reason for the calls to silence. No, 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 don't tell everyone. I'm going to go, I'm going to preach to them, and then when I preach to them, I'll show them. And then the miracles help authenticate the message. And further, Jesus sees the need here to appoint, uh, to appoint apostles at this point because he's running out of time. He's running out of time. He needs to appoint apostles who will share his message, basically teach what he's been teaching. So he's been teaching them. Now they need to take what he's been teaching and teach it themselves. And he gives them the ability to do miracles and to cast out demons, to deliver, give people deliverance from demonic oppression, he gives them that ability as well because just like in the case with him, those miracles help authenticate the message. The message. Those miracles help give a foretaste of the fact that the kingdom is here and will more fully be here one day. Basically, by appointing and commissioning the apostles, Jesus ensures that the proclamation of the gospel gets out 12 times wider and 12 times faster. Okay. He ensures that that message gets out 12 times wider and 12 times faster. Take a look with me at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. This is Mark 3.13. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. And Matthew's account of the same passage adds, he also gives them the ability to heal diseases. He appointed the twelve, verse 16 says, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot. Who betrayed him? Now, what was the role of an apostle? Well, we've already shared a little bit about that. The word apostle is a transliteration of the Greek word, okay? Now, the noun form apostolos, 
on the verb form apostello, meaning to send, or a sent one. Okay? Apostle basically means a messenger. Somebody sent with a message. And the Bible sometimes uses this word to refer to any messenger. So, for example, in Philippians 2, verse 25, Paul writes, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger, that's the word translated, that, that apostle comes from, and minister to my need. See, the Philippian church had sent Epaphroditus on a mission to help Paul and with a message from them. And so Paul's calling him, Paul here calls him that church's apostle, that church's sent one. He's just using that word in a more generic sense. Okay? So that word is there in the Bible in, in that more low-key, general way. But what we're talking about now, we could say apostle with a capital A, okay? a, a title, an office, a special role that God ordained. Apostle with a capital A was something truly unique. In naming the 12 apostles to be his apostles, Jesus is choosing them to serve as authorized heralds of the king. They were his official representatives. They were fully accredited representatives of Jesus with a very specific mission. And one way we know this is because of another term that we see used for them in the Bible, and that term is the twelve. The twelve. The twelve becomes like another title. Sometimes instead of saying the apostles, the Bible will just refer to these men as the twelve. For example, in John 20, 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, in Acts 6, 2, and the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples. See, this wasn't just the number of apostles, like it was just any random number, like Jesus might just as easily have chosen 10 or 13 or 15 or 20. No, there's, there's symbolic significance to the number 12. One way we know this is because after Judas betrays Jesus and it's time to replace him, we see in Acts chapter 1 that there were two men who were well qualified Two men who could have been appointed as apostles. But they're very specific that only one of them can be appointed. We need 12 apostles. We've already mentioned the importance of why you know these apostles were able to cast out demons and to heal. Right? Because it helped them back up and authenticate their message helped show that they truly were from God. But another way that they were a sign and foretaste of the kingdom was in the fact that there were 12 of them. See, here's what's going on. Jesus is painting a picture. He's painting a picture with the fact that he's got these 
12 men who represent him. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and now there are 12 apostles. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, okay? this is the not yet aspect of the kingdom, right? In the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 apostles will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, these 12 apostles have a very specific, a very special future role to play in Jesus' kingdom. And the fact that there's 12 of them now points forward to that reality, to that time when Jesus will rule and these 12 apostles will judge the 12 tribes under him. Who were the apostles? Well, we've already seen Jesus call Peter, Andrew, James, and John to follow him and be his disciples. And those names are amongst the apostles. We saw him call Levi or Matthew, uh, the, the tax collector. He's one of them. And now he calls not just these men to be, well, now he calls these men who are already his disciples to be apostles. And out of the other people following them, he calls eight more men in this passage. Eight more men whose names we see for the first time here. A few things to note about these men. First of all, they're very ordinary. They're very ordinary. There's no one amongst them who's especially educated or religious. Other than Matthew the tax collector, none of them would have been wealthy or particularly well-known. And while Matthew was probably quite wealthy and perhaps also somewhat well-known, it was all for the wrong reasons, right? He was well-known perhaps only because he's hated. He's working for the Romans. And he's the guy you've got to report to with your taxes. And yes, he's gotten wealthy, but he's gotten wealthy because he's ripping people off. He's gotten wealthy working for the enemy. And then this number of apostles is four fishermen. Matthew, of course, the despised tax collector. And one man with a background as a member of a violent radical group. That's Simon the Zealot. Zeal, passion, radical. A very political, radical group. And then the other five men, we don't honestly know very much about. Seems that there wasn't really much to say about them in terms of worldly credentials. Very ordinary. And then Judas, who again we know well for all, all the wrong reasons, right? Judas who portrayed Jesus. Now this is not to say that God doesn't use highly educated people or that people with a religious background or a lot of Bible knowledge, uh, you know, that, that God doesn't use people like that. We see in the Apostle Paul for, as one example that God certainly can and does use people with, uh, who are very intelligent, very well educated, uh, very well positioned, so on and so forth. 
And we see also that God does use wealthy people sometimes. People with respected positions or notoriety. He can and he often does. But my point here is this. He doesn't need any of those things. For God to work, he doesn't need any of those things. God can do great things and often does through very ordinary people. These apostles were also a diverse group, excuse me. This despised tax collector, Matthew, would not have been someone any of them would have typically wanted to be with. And especially not Simon the Zealot. Remember, tax collectors are collaborating with Rome, with the enemy. And then these zealots were particularly passionate about overthrowing Rome, giving Israel back their freedom. But Jesus called all these men together to serve as his apostles. And here again we see God can use all sorts of different people. All sorts of different people. And what unites us in Christ is enough to overcome even very, very uh, uh, different, uh, uh, diverse, even opposed backgrounds and cultures and perspectives in the world. And we see these men are also flawed. There's a reason James and John were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder by Jesus. We see in Luke 9 that when a village did not respond in faith to Jesus, that they thought it would be a good idea to call fire down from heaven and burn everyone up. Jesus, why don't we do this? Thankfully, (laughs) and not surprisingly, Jesus, compassionate Jesus as we've seen, rebukes them. A way off point. Very rash. Peter, we know, was full of passion, and we see that passion again and again in the Gospels. But we also see that he often didn't really get what Jesus was doing and why. He's been called the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, the disciple who was always saying or doing things with confidence, but things that he then later would realize are way off point. Jesus had to correct him a lot. We see Jesus having to uh, tell these apostles again and again um, that that he's, uh, he, he rebukes them for their lack of faith again and again. He says to them again and again, Do you not understand? Do you still not understand? Jesus has to explain things to them again and again and again. When Jesus was arrested, the apostles all fled for their own safety. And Peter would go on to deny knowing Jesus three times that same night in an effort to not get himself into trouble. And of course, Judas betrays Jesus. He sells information to the Jewish authorities about when and where they could more easily arrest Jesus. 
Now, my point here is very, very definitely not that the character of leaders doesn't matter. This nonsense we sometimes hear about where supposed church leaders think that they can do as they please morally because they're anointed and because they're the man of God. That mindset is absolute rubbish. Doesn't square with scripture at all. As we talked about a few weeks ago when we were talking about elders in the church, right? there are character qualifications that the Bible gives us for elders. There's also character qualifications the Bible gives us for deacons. And if that's true of elders and deacons, it would certainly have been true for apostles. It's true of all Christian leaders. And in fact, what does 1 Peter tells us? God tells us, be holy as I am holy. Be holy as I am holy. God expects holiness from all Christians. So that's not my point. My point, rather, is that leaders are not perfect. Our trust should not be in our leaders. Our trust needs to be in God himself. A God who can work through imperfect leaders. We can trust that God will work despite the imperfections of the human leaders in his church. My friends, look around you. I mean, we're, what, a year and a half old as a church? And sure, it's not like it's, it's not thousands of you here, but there's steady growth in this little church. I mean, a friend of mine was teasing me. He heard some good reports of what was happening here, and he's like, Don, what's happening here, man? He says, it's, you're not a very good preacher, and you're not good-looking, and you're not cool. <laughs> like, what's, what's happening here? Right Now he's teasing me, he's just messing with me, but he's on point. Okay, What's happening here is not about me. And there are some gifted and faithful people in this church, but what's happening here is not about them either. What's happening here is that God is at work. Jesus is building his church. And he's building his church through imperfect people. Praise God that he works that way. We can trust that God will keep developing leaders to become better leaders. When they get things wrong or they need to grow in wisdom, we can trust God to correct them and continue teaching them, just as we saw Jesus do with Peter and with James and John. When leaders lack courage and boldness, as the disciples did, we can trust God to grow their faith and strengthen them as he did with Peter and all the apostles. My friends, do you realize that after Jesus' ascension to heaven, most of these same men who fled on the night of Jesus' arrest would go on to be persecuted and even martyred, that's killed for their faith. Killed as they boldly and relentlessly proclaimed that Jesus is God and Savior. They were radically changed and empowered 
by the Holy Spirit to become the courageous leaders God called them to be. Praise God that he works like that. And even when a leader disqualifies themselves from leadership, or even apostatizes, that's turning their back on Jesus and walking away, even then we can trust that God is still at work. The damage this does can be massive, there's no doubt about it. The heartache and heartbreak that can come from, from, from leaders disqualifying themselves, it can be huge. But that doesn't mean it can derail God's plan. And in fact, oftentimes we see that God will use even something as sad and heartbreaking as leaders disqualifying themselves. He can still and does still use that for good. Judas is a clear example of that. Judas is a clear example of that. The most awful sin that it was ever committed was the crucifixion of Jesus. And Judas played a key role in that, and arguably even the most wicked role in that. Think about the depths of betrayal. He spent three years with Jesus, day in, day out. He was close to him, and he knew the character of the man he would stab in the back. He did it anyway some money, heinous and wicked. And yet, the cross, the greatest sin ever committed, was also how God accomplished the greatest good the universe will ever know. How sin is defeated and sinners can be saved. There have been several horrible examples of key Christian leaders being disqualified over the last few years, including some leaders that I know, some people in this church, had been positively impacted by. Leaders that the people in this church had really looked up to, well-known men like Ravi Zacharias. Then it comes out, this man's not at all who people thought he was. Not the godly man people thought he was. Hard to see if he's even... A Christian, the sort of sin he was covering up and hiding. But my friends, as awful as such things are, we've got Judas in the scriptures, right? We should not be shocked when these things happen. The Bible gives us reason to almost anticipate it happening. Hopefully not very often, but when it does happen, we know it's not, it shouldn't be a surprise. It does happen. It does happen. And such failures of men do not mean that Jesus is not who he says he is. And don't take away from the truth of the, of the gospel message. And it doesn't mean that Jesus' good purposes will not be accomplished. Jesus will build his church. That's what he tells us. I will build my church. Despite the failures of men. Now, what are the requirements for being this type of apostle? What are the requirements 
or being a capital A apostle? Well, we see all of these in our text today. Number one, they were directly appointed by Jesus. They were directly appointed by Jesus. Apostles do not appoint themselves. Apostles do not volunteer for the job. Apostles are not voted in for the job. Jesus appoints his own representatives. They were enabled to perform verifiable, undeniable, no doubt about it, miracles. Okay? Not talking about, oh, I heard from someone that this happened and so on and so forth. Verifiable, undeniable, no doubt about it, miracles. Signs and wonders as an authentication of the fact that they are apostles, that they really do carry Jesus' authority, and that their message really is from God. And then later on, okay, after Jesus rises from the dead and ascends to heaven, we see another qualification of apostles given in Acts chapter 1. And that is that they were required to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. They were required to be eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ. That's the stipulation Peter gives us when they're choosing someone to take Judas's place. Acts one twenty one says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. This was important because it points us to a big part of the apostles' role moving forward in the story of redemption. After Jesus was raised from the dead, and after Jesus went back to heaven, these men needed to stand boldly and say, Jesus is who he says he is. And the number one proof of that is that he raised from the dead. And I know it. I saw it. And think about this with me. There's, there's people in false religions out there who have been willing to die for their faith, believe it, believe it deeply, they're willing to die for it. Okay. But we need to realize part of what's so powerful about the persecution that the apostles go on to face, what's so, part of what's so powerful about the fact that they were willing to die for this message they were preaching is that they didn't just they would have known if they were wrong because they were all eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ so if if i'm standing boldly telling you i know this man is god because he died on the cross and then he rose from the dead and now somebody threatens to kill me unless i back down on that Right? If I'm not telling the truth, I'm going to back down. Because I know whether or not I'm telling the truth. I know whether or not I saw Jesus after his death. 
when they did see Jesus after his death, and they knew he was God, and they were willing to stand for that with confidence through all sorts of persecution and even death. In Acts 1.8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, very quickly, let me just try and hit on the Apostle Paul because... I imagine some of you are now thinking, okay, hang on, how does Paul fit into this? You said there's only 12. Paul would be number 13. Paul only comes later. How does this all work? Why do we call him an apostle? Why does the Bible call him an apostle? In Acts 26, 15 through 18, Paul testifies to how Jesus appeared to him. The resurrected Jesus appeared to him and clearly commissioned him to serve as an apostle. It says this, Acts 26, verse 15. Um, Jesus says this to him, I am the Lord whom you are persecuting. Remember, he's on his way to Damascus. His whole goal is throwing Christians in, in prison, persecuting Christians. And Jesus appears to him, I am the Lord whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes (coughs) so that they may turn from darkness to light. So if we were going to chart out God's salvation plan on a timeline, you would see this. Jesus comes, Jesus preaches, Jesus heals and drives out demons. Jesus chooses the 12 apostles and sends them out with his message, giving them the authority uh, again to be doing these miracles. He sends them out throughout Israel. Israel nonetheless rejects Jesus and crucifies him. Jesus dies and rises from the dead and ascends to heaven. And then Paul is persecuting the church until one day Jesus makes a special appearance to him, knocks him over, blinds him temporarily, and says to him, I want you, I want you to take the gospel beyond Israel. I want you to take the gospel to the Gentiles. You've got 12 apostles, one for every tribe of Israel. And then you've got Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. That's why he's number 13. You take the gospel beyond Israel. As we look at Paul, we see that he's commissioned by Jesus himself, right? He meets all the criteria. He was commissioned by Jesus himself. He was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. And we also see that he performed sign gifts. It's part of how he defends his own apostleship. 2 Corinthians 12.12 says, 
Uh, Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So Paul meets all the criteria. He was an apostle too. Number 13. Now what about apostles and the church today? Again, this isn't this is not directly in our passage, but I know I know the questions out there, right? Because unfortunately there's a lot of people calling themselves apostles. <coughs> it's important, friends, to realize like if people are talking about apostle like this office from the scripture, this leadership role in the church. It's important to realize that such apostles do not exist today. And it's important because if we're going to view someone as representing and speaking for Jesus, we don't want to look to them unless they really are representing and speaking for Jesus. The apostles taught new truth. Not novel truth. It was prophesied. It's you know, Jesus is throughout the Old Testament. We can see it. The prophecies are there. The shadows, even as the Sabbath, like we were talking about last week, pointing ahead to him. But not novel truth, but new truth. They took the new teaching that Jesus, that Jesus was bringing, and they retaught that. Okay? Now, you don't want some random person out there claiming to be teaching something that's from God but that you can't find in the pages of your Bible. It's very important that you realize that if somebody today is going to tell you that they're speaking for God, they better tell you where they're getting what they're saying from in the Bible. This is the only way somebody speaks from God today as if they're telling you what God has said in the Bible already. And very important we realize that, otherwise we can be misled horribly, very, very quickly. The twelve apostles and Paul the apostle continue their ministry to us today, though, through their legacy in establishing the early church and through the New Testament scripture. Remember, during the life of Jesus, the New Testament doesn't exist. Okay? And what we have now in the New Testament is the recorded teaching of the apostles who passed on to us what they learned from Jesus himself. The writings of the, all the writings of the New Testament were either written by the apostles or authorized by the apostles. We, we don't have a need for living apostles anymore. We have the scriptures. We have the apostles' teaching here in the Bible. Ephesians 2, 19-22 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows 
into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also have been built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The foundation of the church is laid by the apostles and prophets. The teaching we have in the scriptures. Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles. It shapes everything we do as a church. It shapes all our teaching as a church. If the church... Okay, now this is not about the, the building we're in. This is a metaphor of us, the church, as a building. If the church is a building, the foundation, the thing that keeps us standing, the keep, thing that keeps us solid, it's the Scriptures. God's Word delivered to us in the Old Testament through prophets and in the New Testament through apostles. Scriptures. closing then we can be very thankful for the way God used the apostles to spread the truth about Jesus see Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and then God in his perfect plan and his perfect providence made sure that we would hear about it I mean, think about it. Here we are on the tip of Africa, and this all took place in Israel thousands of years ago. <laughs> God ensured that would happen. He um, used apostles to spread the truth, to make sure that the truth about Jesus didn't just end up getting lost, but in fact kept spreading further and further and further. As we see in Acts 1, to the very ends of the earth. And we can be thankful for the local church that God used the apostles to get started. We can be thankful that God accomplished his purposes through ordinary and flawed people and still does so today. Jesus will build his church. He is building his church. And we can be thankful that we have a trustworthy record of what Jesus did and taught. We have trustworthy accounts of the Messiah, the Savior, and the gospel that saves through the New Testament writings that God used the apostles to leave with us. Amen.